to go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9. We continue our trek through the plagues of Egypt where the Lord is displaying his sovereign rule. There is no there is no other God to compete with the Lord. There is no other uh, being by whom deserves all honor, glory, and praise. And so he does so uh, as a display of his sovereignty. He he shows his sovereignty over all creation. And so if there is a God above who is sovereign over all creation, then he is sovereign in all circumstances also, so that his gracious care and his preservation would be uh, garnered greater faith to his people, that as they see the wonders of his mercy, that they also would take refuge in their Messiah as we take refuge in Christ the Messiah. Follow along as I read for us Exodus chapter 9. I'll be reading the first 12 verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. The Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there, were not, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln. And let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses threw it toward the sky and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us go to him for help again this morning. Oh Lord, we come before you this morning seeking your help. As we come before your word, Lord, we entrust that it is by your spirit that it will be enlivened to us, sharper than a two-edged sword. Oh Lord, that it would do so with the precision of the great physician, that we may be beneficiaries of it. That by it, Lord, 
we would garner more faith and prominence, more delight in our Savior, Lord, more love to you, that we would entrust our very lives knowing that you are faithful to keep them. We thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we have been working our way through these plagues, we've been examining the connection, as I've said before, between Pharaoh's question in chapter 5, where he asks, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Pharaoh doesn't ask that question with an, um, an inquiring mind, a, a mind that actually seeks truth, where we see time and time again he hardens his heart to that answer. But he asks it in a um, competitive way to set himself against the Lord. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That I, Pharaoh, son of the gods, or God myself, should obey the God of the Hebrews. And as we've been saying, the Lord has been merciful, actually, to take ten plagues to answer this question before Pharaoh and the Egyptians. For the Lord could have answered the question immediately. when, Before even Pharaoh could have finished the words coming out of his mouth, the Lord could have struck Pharaoh down, removed him from existence. And yet he delays. He takes ten plagues. We don't know exactly how long these plagues lasted. We know there was seven days between one and the other one in, in the early plagues. And so some have surmised that each plague was about seven days, and that might fit a nice pattern that we find in Scripture, but consider that if it was a week, there was ten weeks, that was months the Lord took to answer that question. And so when we see this uh, of the Lord taking time to answer it, we would say that he not only is doing so before the Egyptians, but we know that he does so immediately or primarily before the Israelites, where he's going to take them into the wilderness. He's going to take them on a journey that he would show himself to be the one true and living God, that they would forsake all other gods and worship him. So he must show himself to be Lord over all they have come to know over these many generations. Last week, we saw that the fourth plague had a stress upon worship. And we said that our worship is to be directed toward the Lord alone limited by his revealed will alone. By this, the believer's attention is to be drawn away from this ever-changing world and our ever-changing selves and to the unchangeable God of heaven and earth. Well, we kind of don't leave this theme of who is Yahweh. We don't leave this theme of, of, of how he is to be worshipped for we enter this uh, fifth and sixth plague and we see a display of God's righteous judgment upon sinners with the goal that we, as those who are found in Christ, would wonder at his perfect and sufficient grace. So that we would see a display of God's righteous judgment upon sinners with a goal that we, as those who are found in Christ, would wonder at his perfect and sufficient grace. As we look at these last two plagues of the second set, we're reminded that the plagues are come in three sets of three and culminating in the tenth plague. And so this second and third 
plague follow the pattern of each set, where the second plague following the pattern of the first one, where there's a warning given to Pharaoh, and the third plague coming without warning. The first plague is one that they meet Pharaoh at the water. The second plague, it's understanding that they meet Pharaoh in the courts. And the third plague happens apart from Pharaoh, but it is not apart from his knowledge of what is the source of the plague. We also have been seeing that there is a manifold purpose to these plagues. And uh, with intentional repetition, I'll read for us again these purposes. They gave a public manifestation of the mighty power of the Lord God. They were a divine visitation of wrath, both upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, as well as they were a judgment from God upon the gods of Egypt, which demonstrated that Jehovah was high above all gods. They also were a display, they were to display man's utter inability and his dependence upon that, that man is not autonomous, that he's he has an utter inability and he is utterly dependent upon something other than himself to even exist, but certainly to have comfort, to have possessions, to have health. So they display that, and while they're doing that, they display God's utter omnipotence, his, his all-powerfulness, which is also a display of his utter independence, or as theologians call it, his aseity. They were also a solemn warning to other nations that God would curse those who curse the Israelites. And these plagues were meant to strengthen the people of God in the knowledge of God, and it was for them to know their covenant God better. And so as we look at these fifth and sixth plagues together, we're going to see that in them there's a display of man's natural condition towards sin, and then as we look at the distinction between Israel and Egypt, we'll see a magnificent display of God's mercy. Man's natural condition that we know from Scripture all the way from the beginning, because it doesn't take long to go from uh, Adam and Eve worshiping God in the garden to their disobedience to their first generation, their, their sons fighting and murder, jealousy, all all a host of sins taking fruit in the lives of Cain and Abel, or really in the life of Cain. And so this depravity we see play out through all of Scripture. And so Paul says in Romans that uh, man, above all, is uh, uh, that all men have fallen short of the glory of God, that in all their faculties they have, been fa they have fallen. And we see this in our plagues because in the warning that Moses or the Lord gives to Pharaoh in, the fir in this first plague that we're addressing, this fifth plague, he says, for if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them. That's a new phrase. They could have been present in, in every other presentation, just like the distinction could be present. But here we find it. Uh, especially brought to our attention that the Lord wanted Pharaoh to be warned that if they, he refuses to let them go and continue to hold them, something would happen to him. But this emphasis on this continue to hold them is an emphasis upon Pharaoh's hard heart. His holding them is 
contrary to the evidence before Pharaoh's face. There is an abundance of evidence by this time for Pharaoh to say, the God of the Hebrews, the God of Moses and Aaron, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is the one true and living God. Go and worship him. I release you. I let you go. He's had plenty of evidence to show forth this. And so here there's an emphasis upon his continuing to hold him, continuing to deny what is right at the end of his nose, which will eventually be a boil. But for now, it's just this these uh, first four plagues. Much in the same way as the Apostle Paul spoke of man's fallen nature, which can look upon the evidence of creation and still hold back the truth in unrighteousness. Here the depravity of man is on display in the heart of Pharaoh, for he refuses to see what the Lord is saying. He refuses to hear. And we know we've discussed and had a certain explanation upon that it would be the Lord, that the Lord is sovereign over all his creation, and so the Lord can make from one lump a vessel of honor and a vessel of destruction. For he is the Lord above all, and we are not to question him in that, but we would question, maybe wonder is a better word, that he would take a vessel of destruction and form a vessel of honor. Remember, as I've said, it is not a wonder that it was Jacob or Esau he hated, but it's a wonder that it was Jacob he loved, for there was nothing to love of Jacob except that the love of God was upon him. And so we can see that this pestilence of the livestock these, uh, tells us that the service of the natural man is corrupted at its source. And the boils make us think of that awful description of the unregenerate given through the prophet Isaiah. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Hear the word of the Lord. In Isaiah, echoes, harkens back to Exodus and the boils. We read in Deuteronomy 28, as we will. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28, as we will see the connection between these plagues specifically and idolatry. We read the end of uh, these cursing, these curses this morning. Here uh, are some of the beginning of these curses. In verses 14 and 15, it says, after the blessings that are uh, put before them for obedience, it says in verse 14 of Deuteronomy 28, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you today to the right or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. I think as whole Bible readers, we can hear the words of our Savior. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot have two masters. So if you were to turn aside from the commandments of the Lord, you are turning from the worship of God to the worship of an idol, to the worship of, an, of a false god. Verse 15, but it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. 
So turn to verse 35, or go down to verse 35. What are what what is one of the curses? The Lord will strike you on the knees and legs with sore boils, from which you cannot be healed, from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. We read later on in Deuteronomy that there will be no livestock to eat of, and so they will turn to heinous acts. This is the judgment that the Lord will bring upon Israel from upon the Israelites for idolatry, which will play out in their lives as disobedience. See how the Spirit of the Lord continues to utilize this verity, this truth of history, both in its uh, giving in in Exodus, its recording in Exodus, its living out in Exodus in real time, its recording in Exodus, its its explanation and further uh, uh, brought along Revelation and Deuteronomy 28. Now turn to Revelation 16. We want to see the connection between these plagues and God's judgment upon idolatry. Verse 16, we, we or excuse me, chapter 16 of Revelation, we read that... Um, the Lord is uh, explaining this time between the ages, this time where there will be bowls of wrath or trumpets announced of God's judgment. In verse 1, it says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. We see here, we, if we took time to read through the bowls and through the trumpets, we would see a, a recapitulation of the plagues of Egypt. Not all of them, for there were ten plagues, but there's only seven trumpets and seven bowls. But what we see here is that the Lord, setting a pattern in Exodus, played out in Deuteronomy, finds its consummation in the symbolic language of Revelation to display God's hatred and righteous judgment upon false worship, upon worship of false gods, upon idolatry, as we saw in Deuteronomy, upon disobedience, certainly upon fallen man. Here, specifically mentioned those who took the mark of the beasts, and maybe one day we'll take time to explain how that is not a succession of historical events for a later time, but this is playing out in our lives even now in the age of the church where we see the judgment upon God, upon the hearts of men who've corrupted his law, who have uh, forsook his sovereignty. And so are subject to any number of corruption in the flesh, any number of disease and pestilence. And it's funny that as we recognize this, and, and though it is not wholly disassociated with some sort of natural process, but we see the only answer, the only solution that the world has to these things is 
natural causes. So that it would be man who would be the answer to such things and not God. So we see this connection between these plagues in Egypt to idolatry, to judgment upon idolatry, and specifically upon the world system of idolatry. How did that play out first locally in Egypt? Well, there are many gods that are being judged here, and there are many uh, different ways to address these gods. And you go about it and you go, wow, they had like 10 gods that had to do with this one aspect of life. And it points to uh, man's heart being an idol factory, as Calvin said. And so they create gods for every situation from every type of origin just to make sure, I'm sure, in their hearts to settle their conscience where they where you think they would serve one God and it would settle their conscience, but yet it doesn't. So then they find another God that they can serve and appease, but it doesn't settle their conscience. So they serve another God and another God and another God. It is a a level of despair that we see in idolatry, that we see in the living out of this, even in our own age. There is despair in the eyes of those who are chasing after other gods who have their own imagination, who have only their own imagination to come up with. The two gods that I think uh, would be of most note for us this morning as we look at this judgment of the livestock and of uh, the air or the boils or the ashes here that turn into boils would be the god of, or the goddess of Hathor and Sekhmet. Hathor was one of the most famous goddesses of ancient Egypt. She was known as the Great One of many names, and her titles and attributes are so numerous that she was important in every area of the life and death of the ancient Egyptians. Depicted with a body of a woman and head of a cow or bull or a woman with cow horns, she was worshipped as the goddess of women, fertility, children, and childbirth. She was also the goddess of beauty and and patron of the cosmetic arts. She was actually associated with the queen. The other god here is Sakhmet, is one of the oldest known Egyptian deities. She is uh, depicted as a lion-headed woman, sometimes with the addition of a sun disc on her head. Sakhmet was represented by the searing heat of the midday sun and was a terrifying goddess. However, for her friends, she could avert plague and and cure disease. She was the patron of physicians and healers, and the priests of Sakhmet became known as skilled doctors. It's actually, uh, they come together and there's some sort of Uh, understanding that they both uh, are a part of saving mankind of some catastrophe. And so the the saving of mankind was commemorated every year on the feast day of Hathor and Sakhmet. Everyone drank beer stained with pomegranate juice and worshipped the mistress and lady of the tomb, gracious one, destroyer of rebellion, mighty one of of enchantment. How clear is it that 
though there may be many gods in the crosshairs of our Lord, and they're not named for uh, the Lord here is displaying himself, not displaying false gods, but for us contextually to see how these gods that were worshipped by the Egyptians are utterly destroyed by these two plagues. The Lord says, you revere your livestock, because, and this God is to protect them. I will kill every one of them. To show that it's not uh, of natural causes. He says, I will destroy every one of them, and I will stop the plague. I will stop the pestilence at the border of Egypt and Goshen, such that not one of the livestock of the sons of Israel died. Furthermore, he, he, he goes to now Pharaoh in his court. He says, take dust or take ashes or soot from a kiln. Other translations uh, recognize, uh, use, interpret that word as the furnace, though I don't think that there's a, the, the the in the articular so that it may be the one ashes that were burnt to a specific god. It could be the ashes from the kilns that they were using to build their bricks and, and was used as an act of, of oppression and where the God was judging uh, the Egyptians specifically. But I think it's more appropriate to consider that these ashes were available, widely available to the, from these shrines that were about Egypt or maybe in Pharaoh's own house so that it wouldn't be hard for Moses and Aaron to come about these ashes to show that you have sacrificed to your gods. Let me show you their power. Let me show you their utter inability to change one piece of your decay such that your very own magicians, the very own magicians who could repeat many of these plagues with either their with their what was called their secret arts could not repeat this and they were actually subject to it such that they could not stand before Moses and Aaron oh how mighty the lord displayed himself before pharaoh and really as we've been saying before the israelites it is of such wonder and we we dare not sit high above and look down upon them, for we are as subject to the forgetfulness of the Israelites as the Israelites were. But it is a wonder that that generation, this generation, who witnesses the utter undoing of these gods, would then go to Sinai and say, make us a god that we may worship. And the god they chose was one of a calf, was this goddess was utterly destroyed in this plague. Oh, what a wandering heart the Israelites had, and oh, what wandering hearts we are prone to. Here, the, here Yahweh displays his judgment upon not only the Egyptians' idolatry, but sets the pattern for by which idolatry will be handled. The Lord will destroy the system of idolatry of this world and of this age. Those that worship according to this world, that worship the God of this age or the gods of this age will succumb to these plagues. 
their bodies will be undone. Their livelihoods will be destroyed. A.W. Pink says this world and all its works will yet be burned up, destroyed as completely as were the beasts of Egypt. But the works of the new nature in the believer will abide. You see, the uh, livestock of the sons of Israel, their flesh and their health, was not uh, a display that the Lord will preserve your health and your wealth, but if your faithfulness is enough, that he will increase your wealth and your health, such that you will not succumb to any sickness, that you will never see a decrease in your bank account, that you will always have a lively uh, provision. No, it is a display of the Lord's hand that the heavenly possessions of God's people, their heavenly flesh will abide, will never be undone. For the Lord has made a distinction here between Egypt and his people. As we saw last week, that distinction is the Lord will make a redemption between the livestock of Israel and Egypt. Not one dead animal. Not one boil. I wonder if not one blemish. Maybe those teenagers who had acne one day woke up with a clear face for a time. Who knows? But we do know that this plague did not fall upon them because the Lord denied it of them. Oh, the beauty of God's discriminating grace. This comes not out of thin air, but here the Israelites' deliverance still is still anticipated. It is still anticipating the death of the Passover lamb. See, the Israelites are not redeemed by these plagues, by these first nine plagues. They're not brought out of Egypt by these first nine plagues. They will eventually be brought out by the tenth plague by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, by the shedding of the blood of the lamb, so the Israelites will be redeemed out of Egypt. So these plagues are anticipating that. So though they are protected from these plagues by the merciful and gracious hand of God, it is not out of, uh, out of a vacuum that God does it. He does it because he knows his plans. He knows his decrees. And further, he knows the the covenants that he has established. Turn with me to Isaiah 52. So it is for their internal or eternal security. It is the same. Just the end of Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told, what had not been told them, they will see, and what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? In chapter fifty-three, 
and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that he should that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and yet we did not esteem him. Here, this clear and well-held messianic prophecy, we see that it follows that pattern of Israel. They were chosen not because they were a lovely people, not because they were a great nation. They weren't even a nation. As a matter of fact, they weren't even a chosen, uh, a set-apart race. For Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was called out of what would be eventually be Babylon. No, he had, they had no stately form or majesty that any other people would look upon him. As a matter of fact, when the Israel, Egyptians looked upon him, they subjected them. They said, these are good people to put under our feet. These are good people to serve us. They were despised. Christ here is despised. They were a people of sorrows, and they were acquainted with griefs. Here, Christ, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What would be the difference, though? God's discriminating hand upon the Israelites here in the plagues would not be a discriminating hand upon the Christ, because surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here is our salvation. The discriminating hand of God's grace is not one in a vacuum. That it is, it just isn't done because God uh, overlooks sin in some passive or in, uh, in a way of just laying it aside. But this happens in Egypt to show us that it will be by the death of the Lamb. It will be by His affliction, by His crushing, that we may be set aside, that we may not have one loss of our heavenly possession, that we may not have one affliction of our heavenly flesh. So we see here that the sufficiency of God's grace. We see the sufficiency of the grace of God. First John 5 and verse 18, For we know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. There is one who is born of God, who keeps him, and the evil one does not Touch him. Think of how the boils touch the Egyptians. So the evil one cannot touch those that are born 
in God. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the sons of God, uh, the son of God, excuse me, we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The sufficiency of God's grace is such that the evil one cannot touch your new nature. Though we recognize that our old nature still grabs us from the grave, still tries to sway us and oftentimes pulls us down into the pit with it. Yet our new nature is unscathed because it is born of God. And so it is by the assurance and confidence that we have been born in Christ as he has been raised into new life. So we will not reside in the muck and the mire of our old nature. But that we would come out of it. That we would adhere to the warning to guard ourselves from idols. I'm reminded of the first verse of Romans chapter 12. It says, by the mercies of God. Therefore, by the mercies of God. This is a demonstration of Paul summarizing those first 11 chapters of Romans. How does he summarize what he has already uh, established he calls it the mercies of God. It will be by these mercies that they will have life. That they will be able to live a life that displays a living sacrifice before God. It will be by these mercies that they will that the people of God will be enlivened to live according to the will of God. The sufficiency of God's mercies will be that foundation. This cuts against any, or this actually is established and reestablished in the Reformation. Sola fide, in faith alone. Consider the Council of Trent, which is a counter-Reformation council by the Roman Catholic Church. It's sixth session in Canon 30, if you want to look it up. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted that the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out of every repentant sinner that no debt of temporary punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened. Let him be anathema. This is essentially saying if you believe that by Faith alone, in Christ alone, all your sins, past, present, and future, is completely forgiven with no guilt or punishment from God remaining, with the result that you stand satisfactorily righteous before God, then you are damned. But the Word of God is better than the Council of Trent. If you haven't already turned to Romans, let's start in chapter 3. Let's look at these mercies of God in part that the, Paul has or took pains to explain in those first 11 chapters. In, verse, in chapter 3, verse 
28, we read, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we read in Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a wonder the mercies of God are. We would be like the Egyptians, subject to the plagues. All of our earthly possessions will go the way of this world, but your heavenly possessions will endure. Your heavenly nature will be untouched. You will be assailed. You will be pressed. You will be afflicted. The evil one will come and suggest that by all this, God's faithfulness is to be questioned. Yet, little ones, keep yourself from idols. The Apostle John, before, uh, earlier in his letter in 1 John, in, ver in chapter 4, ver verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Ephesians tells us that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. There's a duality to that. In the sense that where he is, we will be. And the confidence we have in that is as if we are there. Yet as Paul had explained in Romans also, that it will be we will suffer in Christ and so receive his glory. Not that the suffering pays any debt, not that the suffering is of any merit of our own behalf, but that we follow as he is, as he was. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise be to God that the display of God's righteous judgment upon sinners is for us who are found in Christ to wonder at his perfect and sufficient grace. So, believer, rejoice in the Lord and his loving kindness towards his people who are set apart by his grace for his glory to his consummated end. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we give you praise this morning that we, we are like wandering Israel. Our hearts wander easily from you. 
Yet, Lord, it is not our new hearts, our old hearts that wander. Help us, Lord, to see that in Christ we have received new hearts, that is, new desires, so we may live by them in the power of your Spirit, loving you and loving others, not because we fear your punishment, but because we wander, we wonder at your love and mercy. We thank you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.